What do we lack? What do you lack? It's a question that I, I'd like us to chew on this morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the gospel selection in the Revised Common Lectionary. It comes from the Gospel of Mark. I invite you to turn there now in your pew Bibles to Mark chapter 10 or or in the Bibles that you've brought with you from home. And and I think that you'll find it helpful today if, if you leave that open as we reference it a couple of times this morning. We're in Mark chapter 10 beginning at verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our our text this morning, it it really serves as an expansion on Jesus' final words in the previous two verses, from chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. And so as we begin, I want to read those verses to you to provide some context. In those verses, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And then there is this interaction with the rich young ruler about how to inherit eternal life. The gospel writer holds up these two. He holds up helpless children 
and a successful and by all accounts morally upright man for inspection. As those who will inherit the kingdom of God and those who will not. But why? Why why would this be? We'll return to the children a little later this morning, but first, let's explore the the latter, today's text. And in today's passage, Jesus engages with this man who, as I mentioned, is often referred to as the rich young ruler. This story appears in all three of the synoptic gospels. We see it in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. Now, in, in Matthew, we, we hear him identified as young, in Luke, as a ruler. But all three mention the man's wealth. He was prosperous. Now, you may be aware of this, but the, the cultural view in Jesus' day was, was that wealth um, meant that someone was living a godly life. Wealth was reflective of, of God's blessing on your life because of how good you were. And so notice in verses 24 and 26 here, as Jesus moves on from his interaction and explains this to the disciples, the disciples, we read, are astounded. They are astonished. They are perplexed. They can't come to understand how it could be so impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, this man who must be good. What is sort of our present day equivalent to that in our postmodern secular world? What, what are the markers that we consider for someone to have it all together? What are those checkboxes? Is it that they have a, a job, and not just a job, but a, but a job that provides them meaning, right? Or maybe it's home ownership, or it's a they have a relationship, they're in a marriage, maybe it's kids. What are, what are those check boxes you're using? What do you lack? It's interesting, on the one hand, we profess to know that material things do not bring fulfillment. And yet, so often our lives testify to the opposite. And at the very least, we do not collectively arrive at the solution that the text this morning provide, uh, excuse me, prescribes, which is the answer is to give it all away. The man asks a straightforward question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately establishes the man's ethical credentials. Jesus enumerates some of the commandments. He enumerates six things. Five of them are commandments. Did you notice which one wasn't? Do not defraud. It's these six commandments that all refer to how we interact with one another. The four commandments that have to do with the relationship between the man and God are are left out. And, And the one that has to do with interactions with others that's left out, is do not covet. And so it's interesting to note that that those that get listed are all of those commandments that are observable. These are all commandments or behaviors that the crowd could have testified to about 
this man. And so immediately, immediately, Jesus establishes the man's ethical credentials. This is a good man. Now, in preparing for this week's sermon, I came across this blog post from 2006. It's it's written by a gentleman named Mike Todd. He has no other credentials other than he has a blog post, which, as you know, takes little or nothing, uh, right, to put something on the internet. Um, But I, I thought that his creative writing interpretation of how some of us at least might like to have seen this story turn out. Hear hear his words. Picking up right where we are, they've just established that this man follows the commandments. Todd writes, Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. He said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come, follow me. The man's face clouded over as this was the last thing he expected to hear. And suddenly, he had an idea. But teacher, what if we tried this? I'll stay here with the way things are. I'll keep all my stuff. And I'll tell people it's a blessing from you. It's a win-win for both of us. I I I get to maintain my lifestyle, and you end up looking good. What do you think? Jesus pondered this and said, well, I hadn't thought of that. Give me a second. And after a few moments' reflection, he turned to the man and smiled. Deal, Jesus exclaimed. And the man went away rejoicing and praising God as he was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. What happens instead? After having established the man's moral credentials, Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Biblical Studies professor, the late pastor Lamar Williamson, writes that over the centuries, this this passage has been interpreted in one of three ways. First, it's been interpreted literally. Uh, That is, that Jesus calls all Christians to sell everything in order to follow him. It's been interpreted specifically. Uh, That means that that Jesus is speaking to specific people. We think of those who've chosen a monastic lifestyle or an ascetic lifestyle, that for for those folks, it is meant that they are to sell all their possessions. And and finally, and, and probably most common in our circles, at least within Protestant denominations, it's been translated, or excuse me, interpreted figuratively, right? That, that Jesus tells this particular man exactly what he needs to hear. How do you read it? How do you read it with the respect, excuse me, with respect to the way that you are called to manage your resources? How do you read it with respect to how you are called to manage your money? 
literally, specifically, figuratively. This morning, I propose that we read it generally. That Jesus wants us to know that our relationship with our stuff, that our relationship with, with our possessions, that our relationship with our money, it matters. Now, what is it? What is it in talking about money that makes us uncomfortable? Why does a conversation about the way that we allocate our resources tend to make us fidget uncomfortably in our seats? You know, it's interesting. You know, here in the church, we, we celebrate so many of life's precious and private moments together. We celebrate new life here in baptism. We celebrate the coming together of, of two people in covenant of marriage as they begin a new life together. We come together and we put our arms around one another in times of grief and sorrow, in times of death. And we reassure one another of the life that is to come that is promised because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And yet, when it comes to the subject of money, we get a little squirmy. So I want to I dig into the question, what is, what is underneath that? I recall an example used in Sunday school in order to teach the principle of tithing to young people. That is, the practice of giving 10%. So in, in the lesson, a child is given 10 Tootsie Rolls. Perhaps you're familiar with this child is given 10 Tootsie Rolls and, and told in order to tithe faithfully, they need to give one of those Tootsie Rolls to the church. When we're talking about Tootsie Rolls, it sounds so easy, right? I want to try a thought experiment this morning. I want you to listen carefully, and I want you to be aware of how these following statements make you feel. As, as we change the Tootsie Rolls to dollars, and as we extrapolate this out to ever-increasing amounts of money. Be aware how you feel. So if you make $10, then you give $1. If you make $100, you give $10. If you make $10,000, you give $1,000. If you make $100,000, you give $10,000. Notice anything? It's interesting, and I can feel it too. It's interesting that though the proportion remains the same as the amounts increase, so does the discomfort. Perhaps presenting itself as a tightening in your chest. What is that about? What do you lack? Now to be clear, this this is not a sermon about tithing, but rather about the posture we assume when it comes to our finances, about our relationship 
with money. When it, when it comes to a conversation about stewardship, it is only secondarily a conversation about giving to the church. It is primarily a formation conversation. And just as we emphasize and are not shy about the importance of worship, about daily prayer, about Bible study, and about service, stewardship matters with regards to who we are becoming. And because I believe that, I can confidently say, I am not concerned with your giving to the church. I'm concerned that you give yourself away. Now, if, if you are a member of First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale, then, then you have planted your flag in the sand. You have said, I am with these people. And I believe it is your responsibility to give some portion of what you give away to the church. But the overarching principle is, the overarching principle is that you need to give it away. Now, with respect to Jesus' interaction with the man in today's text, the conversation, again, it's, it's not a money conversation. It's a formation conversation. Jesus looks at him and loves him and tells him the one thing he lacks, the one thing that this man needs to hear that will enable him to receive God's grace. Williamson later writes this about the passage, after we have done our best to make this text say something less upsetting to our system of values, Jesus looks intently at us and affirms that life is not to be had by accumulating things, but rather by disencumbering ourselves. Hear those words again, that, that life is to be had not by accumulating things, but rather by disencumbering ourselves you see the difference that makes to our posture? In other words, there is something very significant about the way we relate to our stuff and our ability to receive the life that God has for us. Friends, this is a conversation about our ability and willingness to trust God, to be open and vulnerable before God. And so, how is it that children will inherit the kingdom of God? The late 21st century novelist David Foster Wallace brushes up against this in a really significant way in his short story entitled, All That. It appeared in a December 2009 issue of The New Yorker. Foster Wallace writes, Once when I was a little boy, I, I received as a gift a toy cement mixer. And, and it was made of wood except for its wheels and its axles, which, as I remember, were, were thin metal rods. And I'm 90% sure it was a Christmas gift. It, it weighed three or four pounds, and... And it was a simple toy with no batteries. It had a colored rope with a long handle. And you held the handle and, and walked, pulling the cement mixer right behind you. Just like a wagon, although not, 
near the size of a wagon. At some point, several weeks or months after Christmas, my parents, they led me to believe that it was a magic or, or highly unusual cement mixer. You see, the magic was that unbeknownst to me, as I happily pulled the cement mixer behind me, the mixer's main cylinder or, or drum, the thing that actually mixes the cement, it rotated just as the drum on a real cement mixer would. And it did this, my mother said, only when the mixer was being pulled by me. And only, she stressed, when I wasn't looking. Now she, she insisted on this part. And my, fa- my father la- later backed her up. The magic was, was not just that the drum of a solid wood object without batteries rotated, but that it did so only when unobserved, stopping whenever observed. If while pulling I turned to look, my parents somberly maintained, the drum magically ceased its rotation. Foster Wallace goes on to tell of, of attempt after attempt of trying to catch the cement mixer in rotation. He would begin by by walking quickly and quickly whirling around. He would employ the help of friends to pull the cement mixer for him so that he could watch hiding behind a bookcase. He used mirrors. All, of course, to no avail. And Foster says this, How was this that I... Never, even for a moment, doubted what my parents told me. And this is why, this is why it is that adults and even parents can unwittingly be cruel. Because they cannot imagine doubt's complete absence. They've forgotten. They cannot imagine doubt's complete absence. There's something profound here that Foster brushes up against. And it is that our experience as adults in navigating a very broken world has worn down doubt's complete absence. We have forgotten what a life like that can be like. We have lost an utter sense of trust. From the repeated experience of being let down by others, of being betrayed, of being lied to, of broken relationship, of having our hearts broken. These experiences, one by one, They close us off. And what Jesus communicates to the man today is that it is a practice of giving ourselves away that opens us back up. It opens us to the possibility of utter reliance on God. It opens us up to the possibility of trusting, of faith, and of ultimately receiving the gift of life that God has to offer.
What do we lack? Nothing but the ability to receive. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.